This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Well, Victoria, we are growing, of course, and to accommodate our future population, the experts say we can't keep growing out. We don't have the infrastructure or the services to keep on sprawling. So if we're going to grow, we need to grow up. Trouble is, we haven't done high-density living very well in the past, have we? Developers have been allowed to put profitability before livability because, of course, the more apartments you squeeze in, the more money you make. And when you start talking about the need for more high-rises in more places, there's always going to be some opposition from neighbouring residents. So... If something's got to change, if Victoria's future growth depends on more high-rise living, how are we going to build apartments that people are happy to live in and happy to live alongside? Bronwyn O'Shea here with you for the Conversation Hour today and we're going to tap into the brain power of some architects, some urban designers and your ideas too. Are you in a medium or high-density home? What can we learn from your experience? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. And this isn't just a conversation for inner Melbourne, of course. This is something that we're going to need to consider all the way from the suburbs to the regions as our state grows. So how can we make the apartments we already have and the apartments that we build in the future more livable? Nicole Cook is a lecturer at the Uni of Wollongong's School of Geography and Sustainable Communities and she thinks we could start by building with families in mind. Hello, Nicole. Hi, Bronwyn. We probably think of apartments more as a stepping stone, perhaps for singles or a downsizing option for empty nesters. Why does that need to change? I think it needs to change because in many of the densifying suburbs, particularly in Sydney, there are quite a lot of families who are living in apartments. And this concentration of families and apartments really compels us to rethink what we're doing in terms of what we're building and we recently did a study with uh with families who are living in apartments in in the suburbs of liverpool in sydney in its southwestern suburbs and we got a really different perspective about what people need and want from their apartments And I think the passion is very similar in Melbourne from what I've read too. So what did you learn about how current apartments are kind of failing to meet families' needs? Well, we were able to talk to residents who were living in apartments in Liverpool CBD and to have a a kind of long conversation with them that went for about an hour. We were able to go on a neighbourhood tour with them and it was possible for us in this very qualitative part of our study to talk to residents about their housing careers and their aspirations for home um, and also thinking about that with respect to uh, family formation, so meaning their decision to have children. And of course we found in the study, I think in some ways it was a little bit surprising for us that in these qualitative interviews, some of our participants uh, there was kind of a theme emerging that the birth of a child didn't mean looking for a detached dwelling, but actually for a larger apartment in the Liverpool CBD. This is really interesting uh, finding. And the sorts of things that uh, they were trading off, of course, was having proximity to retail, community services, health services, schools and parks and public transport. And this is really well documented, I think, in a lot of the literature around compact cities and densification. Um, But one of the kind of issues that emerged were questions around the extent to which these apartments had been designed with families in mind. And so um, actually the types of things that families need are lots of storage space. They need really, really good uh, insulation, sound insulation, so that, you know, the the noise of families doesn't uh, transfer across apartment blocks. Um, there needs to be space for children to sleep. So potentially, you know, having uh, bedrooms that enable two single beds to fit into those bedrooms rather than just making bedrooms that were going to accommodate uh, a queen bed or one single bed. 
Mm. Um, having places for children also to study as they're going to school, so having a, a, a space for them to work. So, I mean, the upshot of our our study really was um, thinking about the potential for the more three-bedroom apartments, which was uh, something we explored then through quantitative analysis as well. So we had this very rich qualitative data that we developed, but then we were able to actually look what was happening with housing supply as well. Um, and and that some of those... Really yeah, um, I was going to say, Nicole, some of those things you've talked about there, good storage, you know, good soundproofing, um, study spaces, they're not necessarily things that only families need either. So, you know, if you're building apartments like that, that's going to have benefit to everybody who lives there. Absolutely, Bronwyn. I think that kind of going in through this lens actually talks to a wider kind of uh, the benefits of apartment living that could be, could be achieved through just adjusting the design elements uh, a little bit more. And we tend to think perhaps that, say, a three-bedroom apartment is going to be somewhere that a family would live. But I'm thinking with the cost of living pressures, Nicole, there's probably lots of friendship groups, you know, housemates that would like to live together and cut costs that way, but they can't find apartments big enough to let them do that. I think that's true too and I actually think geography is really important in this question. So we don't really have a good sense of people's everyday demand for the type of apartments that they want to live in. There's not a lot of data at the local scale and so perhaps when you're looking at a suburban town centre, so these town centres are actually rapidly densifying we don't always um, think about that. We often think of the suburbs as being low density, but there are many suburban town centres that are actually identifying uh, quite quickly. And when we look in the suburbs, I think we get a different profile of who might be living in apartments than maybe if we look around universities or particularly around the CBD. And so I think place really matters in this discussion in terms of the demands. And I think it's probably a good time now to be starting to look at qualitative research with different apartment dwellers uh, to see the variation in the demand that emerges because it's mm. a little bit more patterned and diverse and rich um, in the in the types of people who might be living in apartments based on where they're located, based on the demographic of that neighbourhood, based on people's ages. So it's a fascinating uh, opportunity, I think, and a fascinating question about who is living in apartments and how does that change depending on where we're looking at in the city, so the geography and the place in which these apartments are being built. Nicole Cook, stay with us. We're talking about high-rise living. We know that to accommodate our future population in Victoria, we do need to look at higher-density buildings and and medium-density living. How do we get it right? because we haven't had a great track history of this in Victoria. There are a few text messages coming in here where a family of three would happily live in an apartment. Anything that is big enough for us is so overpriced. There is no thought to middle-income families. Australia has a weird relationship with the nation a notion of property ownership. How about an affordable dwelling close to where you work, says Luke. And this one, we're a family with two kids. We'd be so happy to live in an apartment because there's lots of appeal around location and access to shared facilities, but it just doesn't seem to be the norm to build three-bedroom apartments. So, Nicole, what, what, will, what will need to happen to push that shift? Because you can see why developers aren't building them, because the more apartments you can fit in to a block the more money you make surely well absolutely i think when the thing is that i keep coming back to around this is that we do have a planning system and these are really important at the local government level but also the state government level to thinking about mediating some of the impacts or some of the um yeah some of the negative impacts of apartment development it's often done to cater for a small investor market so one or two bedroom apartments and to sort of say there's more people involved in this question than just the person buying that apartment or the developer or the construction company building the apartment and so i think we really need to look to our planning system to see what opportunity is there for us just to diversify this a little bit. One of the reasons three-bedroom apartments are so expensive is because they're so scarce. And so how can we increase supply of three-bedroom apartments within 
what is a very profit-driven industry. But nonetheless, it's not just a profit-driven industry. We're in, we're in a society where there are planning systems and there are local environmental plans, development control plans. There are opportunities for local governments to be more uh, experimental in this space, to take on the lessons of local governments who have already pushed the uh, the minimum proportion of three-bedroom apartments within their local government areas and to take some lessons from those areas. So I think we can be more creative in this space and it would be great to have state governments getting behind local governments to give them the resources they need, perhaps in terms of having a better understanding of demand, but also supporting them in their development of local environmental plans. And I think that's true for Sydney and for Melbourne because this is going to be a part of... Um, not just the inner city, but the suburbs, both of those cities over time. Yeah, Nicole Cook, thank you for kickstarting our conversation today. Lecturer at the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities with the University of Wollongong. And uh, reiterating that point there, this text, try and find a three-bedroom apartment at a reasonable price. There are plenty of three-bedroom apartments, but they seem aimed at families on dual six-figure salaries. I don't need luxury. I don't need an investment. Just a home would be fine. Um, And Rod at Wood's Point says, what about people who've spent thousands on solar and then get shaded out by a multi-story yeah rod the the flow on effects to the neighboring community is a great point and something that we will continue to explore this morning as we talk about what we do to make high-rise living a really great experience for the people who live there but the people who live alongside on abc radio melbourne and victoria this is the conversation hour rebecca's called in carlton hi rebecca Oh, hi there, Bronwyn. It's Rebecca Thistleton calling from the McKell Institute. Here. Ah, great. What insights do you have on this challenge then, Rebecca, of, of building high-rise and building it well? Well, I just think that it's fantastic that people are moving on beyond having a debate around whether or not density is something um, that should be happening and getting around the fact that it needs to happen in terms of preserving Melbourne's livability, but also affordability for people as well. But there still needs to be a, a lot of work done to make sure that... Um, a, Apartment living is attractive to a broader group of people so that we are getting more families into apartments, um, to neighbours uh, who don't necessarily balk at a new proposal, but also for developers so that uh, they are then um, creating projects that aren't driven by short-term market demand, but are creating longer-term uh, legacy, uh, legacy pieces of, uh, of infrastructure. And is that does that basically boil down to, Rebecca, having much tougher, much um, stronger livability guidelines and and regulations around the way we build? Well, I think if we have a look at what's been built ever since the 2013-2014 apartment boom, when there were uh, there was so much demand from developers for some of those really large-scale uh, applications. Um, a lot of what was being built then didn't really have the same sort of uh, rules and regulations in place that are in place today. And that um, really damaged the reputation of apartments around uh, inner Melbourne. Um, the standards have lifted a lot, but there is more work that can be done. And I think, too, that if we have a look at some of the um, new apartment stock that we're seeing built around the Arden Macaulay precinct, which has been uh, based on the rent buy model where people uh, get in at what the market rate is today, um, they're renting and then in time are able to own their apartments. Um, that's that's the, the sort of um, shift to, to apartments that I think could really build uh, public support for the, for the developments themselves to help first home buyers and for families to get into the markets and for us to have uh, apartment buildings that Melbourne can feel uh, really proud of, that can become a part of the inner city's uh, identity rather than uh, something that people don't want to live in. Because there are plenty of cities around the world that are doing this so well, Rebecca, aren't there? I, mean, I just don't understand why it seems to have been such a challenge in Victoria. Absolutely. And I think too that a lot of that has been born out of the way that the developments come about. So that's, uh, you know, 10, 10 years ago when it was just um, really attractive for developers from all over the world to be uh, building really quickly in Melbourne. Um, and purely uh, that was an investor-driven demand as well. Whereas now we have more and more people that uh, really want to get into the property market and uh, buying into a family-friendly apartment complex would uh, be the best thing for them to do if they want to be living somewhere that's close to the city, to services, to schools, and uh, particularly around the sort of that uh, 10k radius of the CBD where uh, public transport is um, is 
so much more accessible as well. Mm. Thank you so much for adding your insights to the conversation today. Um, Rebecca there from the McKell Institute, as we talk about high-rise living, um, the experts say it's not a case of if but just a must, you know. That's what we need to do if we're going to accommodate our future and growing population. But how do we get it right and how do we do it well? Virginia Millen lives in an apartment in Melbourne with her family, her hubby and two kids. Hi, Virginia. Hello, I'm, I've got three kids actually. Three, there you go. So that's a lot of bodies to fit into an apartment. How are you doing it? Well, we're lucky. We are in a three-bedroom apartment um, in inner city Melbourne. So um, we're in a low-rise complex. We were in a two-bedroom in the same um, apartment complex, but we moved up to a three-bed. Um, it's a little bit squashy, but there's a lot of um, payoff, I guess, from we're happy to sacrifice a bit of space for the amenity that we get. So what do you love about it? Why did you want to do that for your family? Well, we actually moved into this complex because my parents have an apartment in this complex. Ah. So we've got family ties. Um, So we moved into a two-bedroom when we had my first child um, and went on to have two more and um, so moved into a bigger space. But I've got my parents here. My sister lives in a one-bedroom as well in this complex. She moved in recently. So um, the family connection is really important. My kids are six, four and two, so um, they're a big help with childcare. Uh, But as well as that, we walk everywhere. We've got playgrounds really close by. I walk to work. Um, We walk to school. We walk to all the activities that the children do. So um, there's a real benefit for us, we feel. And we've got a strong community here. That's interesting you talk about strong community because a a few of the reports and the surveys of people, especially families living in apartments that I've read, talk about the fact that there is a a real risk that people don't feel connected to Mm. um, the people around them and and even just living, you know, multiple stories above ground level, you're kind of just geographically um, disconnected somewhat to what's going on around you. So how have you fostered and found that connection and sense of community? Um, The way this complex has been built is um, most of the entrances and exits to our um, houses um, are outdoor ones. And so firstly, we we also have a big communal space, a green space that was used a lot during lockdown um, by all of the children in the complex. But we walk past each other a lot going in and out of our houses Um, There are a lot of young families in this complex, so we bump into each other at the playground across the road um, frequently. So um, we do manage that connection quite a lot. And we've also got within the complex a number of WhatsApp groups um, for the different kind of stages of our complex where people stay in touch. And that could be, you know, um, I've had a, a box of food delivered to me, but it hasn't shown up did it show up at your apartment or it could be um, can somebody pick my child up from school I'm running late so fantastic Mm. interesting that you talked about being close to your sister and your parents who all live in the same apartment building quite a few texts coming through saying saying we need multi-generational and multifunctional housing another here Mm. designed for extended family or shared housing for mixed groups of people is that something that you think families would would like to see when we think about designing apartments for the future Oh, it's a gift to us. Um, with young children, we feel like we've got the village that we need to raise them um, just by having grandparents so close by. For example, for me to talk to you, my mum has just popped over while my two-year-old sleeps in case he wakes up <laughs> midway through this conversation. So she could, I could just ring her and, and she came over within five minutes. My sister often comes to dinner and um, my husband travels sometimes for work and when that's the case, I've got someone who can help me wrangle the children um, in the evening. So I think it's hugely beneficial, but it is a different mindset because we do have um, this ideal of a a block of land or a house on a um, quarter acre block um, and we do have less space in this place. We don't have as much outdoor space that is ours and um, we can't have as much stuff. So, 
Yeah, everything has a compromise, doesn't it? Um, Virginia, thank you so much for just describing what has been really great about apartment living for your family of five. Virginia Millen there. Um, Let's head to Gary at Bayside. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Virginia. How are you? Good. What did you want to say? I was a bit amused by your uh, guest speaker and I came in late on the um, the article saying that three bedrooms apartments are expensive due to their scarcity mm. uh, or words to that effect. Um, with all due respect, that's a little bit uh, misleading and naive. Uh, a three bedroom apartment, many people who are buying a one or a two would love to have a three bedroom apartment at a very cheap price thinking, and the words are, it's only one more bedroom. The reality is a three-bedroom apartment has a slightly larger living area, larger kitchen, more cabinetry, either an ensuite and a bathroom or two small bathrooms and an additional larger hallway and the third extra bedroom and it has two parking spaces. I'm hearing like dollars, Gary. <laughs> dollars, dollars, yes. dollars. Yeah. One bed, and like a one-bedroom and a two-bedroom apartment which has a single parking space. All of that translates into a price per square metre um, that is sometimes a little bit more expensive because you have larger outdoor areas and their orientation is slightly better than ones and twos. But in reality, it's the number of square metres, the cabinetry and the parking that contributes to it. And no legislation, no reports, no white papers, no governments, no councillors are going to change that. Thanks, Gary. Rod's in South Yarra. Welcome, Rod. Um, My wife and I are elderly. Uh, We moved into a a three-bedroom apartment in the end of 2015 after after buying it off the plan in 2013. And I cannot speak too highly of uh, living in apartment has just completely changed our lives i couldn't go back to the suburbs where we've lived all of our pre lives previously so what and, do you love uh, about it rod okay so the list is long uh, <laughs> probably the most uh, important is uh, in our building it's it really worked as a community because a lot of people moved in at the same time when it was new and uh you couldn't help but get to know people because you constantly bumping into them in the lift we now have um uh, our neighbors have become our friends and uh, we have uh, monthly uh, drinks and often go out with uh, various neighbors it's fantastic when you want to go on a holiday you just close the front lock the front door and off you go you don't have to worry about anything we're close to public transport so we got rid of one car and we've got a, a parking space for the other um uh, the, the list just goes on and on and if I could um, uh, could just say too that I find that real estate agents haven't really caught up with selling apartment living we were very apprehensive before we moved in as to what was uh, what it was going to be like and and real estate agents sort of didn't think about the advantage they talk about the, the space um, and so on but they don't talk about all the other benefits that there are with when they're selling apartments and I that's think a lot really of people, interesting Rod yeah I, I think a lot of people are needlessly apprehensive uh, about it um, so yeah that, that, that's been our experience good to hear from you Rod in South Yarra and it's interesting because there are a few texts this one says uh, apartment living is so far off my radar would never contemplate it ever i could not live so close to so many other people and kathy writes what about those of us who want to live in a single story house with a garden not everyone wants to live with shared walls around us and a balcony or concrete courtyard no kathy that's absolutely true it's not for everyone but it's going to have to be for more people if we're going to fit everybody in is what the experts are telling us well sarah aldridge is a uk registered architect and a founding member of the regional architecture Association. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, how are you, Bronwyn? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Why is it important to have high-rise apartments as part of the mix? Who, who are they particularly good for? So we always talk about housing diversity, and I think um, that it's interesting hearing Rod and Kathy's perspectives. Rod, who loves his um, apartment living, Kathy, who's pretty much saying absolutely no way. Mm. Um, because this is what housing diversity is all about. It's not one 
solution fits everybody and it's not everybody has the same opinion about how they want to live or even how they want to live at different stages of their lives so rod has very happily despite his initial apprehension moved into three-bed apartment happy as larry um loving you know the community and and the convenience and kathy who i don't know what stage of life kathy's at but you know kathy's opinion is absolutely wouldn't suit me at all so this is why we need to um have this mix of housing some people just really want to live in a you know three or four bedroom single house other people want to you know really don't mind living in apartments and really like the the convenience of that and and this is why we need the mix in there because density is not necessarily a bad thing density gives us um options and choices and some people might really love their townhouse because it has a small garden but they still feel like it's a house other people love the apartment because it doesn't have a garden and somebody else might love having the ability to have a garden maybe they're small children multiple dogs i don't know whatever um and that's that's why we need this not only mix of apartments but mix of housing choices to suit um all the different people with all the different um housing needs sarah i live regionally so i tend to think of uh, you know medium even high-rise living as as something that's for capital cities and and maybe major centres do we need to rethink what this could mean for regional communities Mm. i think we do definitely and housing diversity is as important regionally regionally as it is in metropolitan centres and I mean, everyone thinks high-density high living means high-rise apartments. It really doesn't. There are so many different types of apartments. You can have kind of low-rise apartments, which are, you know, six-packs or, you know, those kind of buildings that we're all quite used to seeing, the sort of traditional low-rise apartments. But also you can get quite quite dense housing with townhouses. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that when you increase density, everybody suddenly goes into a 40-storey glass um, apartment building. Um, that obviously is high density living, um, but you can get you get there are fairly high density, certainly medium to high density models of housing, which which are really quite low rise. But it does, of course, mean that people don't have you know large gardens and driveways and double triple garages. It means that um, that density of living um, has the uh, the benefits of having everything close by it also means that you don't need two cars maybe you only need one or you don't need any there's car sharing schemes everything's walkable or cyclable or good um, transport connections so you you achieve that density by providing better facilities Um, and also as one of your other um, callers said that the the place is very important so there's no point in just sticking a really high density um housing development in the middle of nowhere with 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 no facilities because clearly everyone's going to be driving around and then there's nowhere to park and it it creates havoc so it's really important that the the sites are chosen and that the the areas of dense living are very carefully considered and that that it goes in tandem with good quality um facilities as well Mm. this text is interesting some other points this texter says why do they have only very high-rise apartments. I grew up in Brooklyn. It's mostly four- to five-storey buildings and attached houses. I meet a lot of older people who would like small one-storey units with a small garden. Another point is that in an apartment, there is a noise component. You have someone on top, someone below, and the wall noise. Sarah, do we need to be better at designing apartments that you know can meet our expectations and our idea of what is what what contributes to livability and and how do we make that happen yeah absolutely so if you think about cities like for example paris that it's really kind of four or five stories and across really the whole of central paris there isn't there isn't really anything taller than that and paris is a is a pretty dense city um obviously you think about other cities like new york you know then then obviously that's kind of much higher rise building so there definitely are different models of dense housing and they don't all need to be um very high rise buildings um what's the second part of the question oh how do we improve um quality of living i mm, think things for, like noise me, there's, yeah it's uh, i mean i've lived in apartments 
pretty much you know kind of in various countries all, all around the world and where you have a purpose-built apartment there really is no excuse for poor acoustic quality so you should be able to be in your apartment and play music and have children and listen to movies on the tv without your neighbors banging on the wall telling you to be quiet because there should be really quite good acoustic separation between apartments in a in a contemporary um, apartment building i think where some of the issues arise is um, where for example, a large house has been subdivided into apartments and it's pretty difficult um, to get, it's not impossible, but it's pretty difficult to get really good acoustic separation um, in those circumstances. And also there's, you know, historically there hasn't been, I'm thinking of some apartments I've lived in in London, where there really hasn't been the attention paid to acoustic separation. And you really could hear people upstairs, you knew when they got up because you could hear them tromp, tromp, tromping across the floor to go and put mm-hmm. the kettle on. Um, you know, so you kind of get to know your neighbours in a way that you may or may not necessarily wish to. But in, you know, in contemporary apartment living, that really should not be an issue. You should not be able to hear your the people upstairs putting the kettle on and, you know, whether what shoes they're wearing and the people downstairs if their baby cries at night. You really should not be able to hear that. So, um, again, I would I would say that if, if acoustic separation is important to you, then you definitely should be looking at a, a, contemporary, a contemporary apartment rather than, you know, kind of an old building that's maybe been... In, if it's been cheaply subdivided, for example, it's unlikely to have that level of acoustic um, quality. Yeah. Sarah, thank you for being part of our chat. Sarah Aldridge, UK registered architect, founding member of the Regional Architecture Association. On the conversation now, we are talking about embracing higher density living. If we are to accommodate Victoria's growing population, that's what the experts say we need. More high rises in more places. What's your experience been? Do you live in an apartment? What would you like to contribute as we talk about how we build par- apartments that are great for livability and that people are happy to live alongside on abc radio melbourne and victoria this is the conversation hour bronwyn o'shea with you today marcus in st kilda good morning oh hello how are you good what's apartment life like for you marcus not so good in fact i was listening to sarah i hope she is still listening because the opposite is probably true you want solid concrete or brick um in 2004 they changed the building regulations nationwide and someone wrote a report on that from the university of newcastle in 2007 august 20th in fact uh sylvana wairipa an Mm -hmm. engineer scathing they allowed um low density prefab concrete and I unfortunately in 2006 moved into a newly completed building I can hear everything absolutely everything there's a quote actually just bear with me from the report from Robert Caulfield from Archie Centre here in Melbourne Mm -hmm. no one really knows the magnitude of the problem and that it has been almost impossible to get anecdotal data pertaining to the quantity of litigious cases surrounding noise transmission in apartments. When something is brand new, and he's talking about the change in the regulations, the purchaser's expectations are higher than subsequent owners. We have a continual stream of complaints and inquiries. So this directly concerns ultralight prefab between Mm. apartments. I can hear everything. I can hear just walking from A to B all the time. I mean, and sadly, it's high density where I am, and it's obviously probably the lowest quality of this um, uh, concrete. Will you move, and Marcus? Is I, it enough to make I, you look, move? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a problem. Um, the I did a bit more research, and the Prefab um, Concrete Association says that you must insulate against sound with these apartments this one is not so there may be a solution if you make sure you get adequate insulation but the way the walls rattle everything rattles i mean it's not just footsteps it's any contact with woodwork can be heard in the apartments and on top of that dare i say just for apartment living generally Mm. the person above me and this is high density has a parakeet on the balcony and this is allowed (laughs) This is high density. A parakeet on the balcony in high density. 
and this is allowed. So you've got all sorts of issues, but just some heads up points for your listeners. Yeah, I guess when you're looking at the apartment, stomp around and have a good listen at what you can hear around you. Baron is in Melton. Welcome, Baron. How are you going, my friend? I'm all right. What did you want to say? Well, I'm in my 60s now and um, I had to retire because I was um, um, of ill health. My children are grown up and married and everything like that. And um, I went to sort of purchase a house and it was just too unaffordable for me. So I um, decided to uh, become a grey-haired nomad and I brought my camper van and um, and um, now I just uh, travel around and just um, I, I go from place to place and um, just enjoy what I've got instead of trying to be caught up in all the, the hustle and the bustle of things and um, my health is a much, much better place. And when you're on the road, you don't realise how many people are out there actually just doing what I'm doing, just travelling and avoiding the situations of money and stress. So, you know, I think there's another side to all this story too, eh? Oh, Baron, you're painting a nice picture there. I, I guess it's, I mean, it's something that some people can do. It's not possible for a whole lot of people, though, is it? No. And so how do we, you know, give people like you that opportunity but also make sure we have really terrific quality of life for people who have to or want to live um, in the inner city or, or, you know, much closer to work and, and their social connections? Um Ah, yes, says this, hearing the neighbours' toilet flushing and food smells. Even last night at midnight, I had to go downstairs and bang on my neighbour's door to tell them to be quiet. Um, this from Boff at Brunswick. What if the apartment above you has floating floorboards? How do you suppress that noise? Uh, and this one, I lived in a high-rise flat a few years ago. Never again. I could clearly hear the upstairs neighbour shaking the drips off and <laughs> flushing the toilet. Alan, what a horror story. Crystal Legacy is an Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Crystal. Hello, how are you? We've got quite a few people saying, why are we even talking about this? Why don't we just not grow our population to the point that we need to keep building up? What's what's your response to that? Right. Look, these are really important questions. It's it's part of a, a collective conversation about the future of our cities and regions. And as an urban planner, this is my bread and butter. Um, and often when we talk about, you know, some of the challenges that we're facing, we're seeing a huge call for more housing and that planning needs to get out of the way. But, you know, from my point of view, we need planning to be at the forefront to help us think about how do we accommodate not only a growing population, but a changing demographic. What if we don't embrace high density housing? What will it be like, say, in Melbourne in 30 years time if we continue to sprawl the way we have? Well, I think a lot of people are embracing high, you know, medium density, high quality, good quality density uh, in apartment living. I live in an apartment and that was a choice that I made uh, to accommodate a, a lifestyle that I want. And I've chosen not to own a car and so I can cycle everywhere and, and that kind of um, higher levels of density enable me to live the life that I want to live. So it's about um, accommodating and facilitating uh, choice. Now, if we continue to sprawl, um, unfortunately, what we've seen over the last you know many decades now is that our infrastructure is not keeping pace with the sprawl of housing so you might be able to um you know afford and buy into a home uh that's detached and you have a bit of a backyard but you may not have good quality access to public transport or you may have to drive a great distance to get access to a job or other um sort of services that you need to sustain your life Mm. so there can be this degree of nimbyism around you know, high-rise developments, people might say, yes, I agree, we do need lots of different options for people who, who you know, need or want to live um, in high-rises, but they don't necessarily want it in their neighbourhood. So mm-hmm. if we are headed to a future where we're likely to have more medium to high-density housing, um, you know, extending beyond the CBD, how do we, how do we balance that tension, yeah. Crystal? Such an important question and often the conversation 
picks up on this binary of yes and no, but it's the spaces in between that are far more interesting to me. So for instance, when we are rejecting uh, density, you know, I often will ask the question, well, what exactly are you rejecting? And, and often it can be the design of the building. Um, it can be questions about it's, you know, does it sit within the character of an existing community? And also what does this mean in terms of introducing uh, more people into a community in terms of public transport and, and, and other, uh, you know, provision of services. So it's those questions that are really, really interesting. And so planning, we need to do our planning differently. Um, we have a tendency to focus on regulation and codes and legislation. Those are all important things, but it's more the social components of, of planning. Like, well, how do we, how can we imagine our, our neighborhood a little differently? And to be really frank, many folks who are looking to buy into existing communities have already lived there, but they're looking to downsize their property and they don't want to move away from the community they've established. So again, we need to accommodate that by introducing more housing sort of choice and diversity in our housing stock. Um, and absolutely, this needs to be close to good quality public transport. So the conversation is needs needs to pick up on that nuance and it's got lots of different variables. And so we need people like myself to be out in the community and having and facilitating these conversations. And we should be prepared to, to have the conversation in the first instance as well. Crystal, it's interesting to, to look at the flow and effects um, to the way we build other surrounding infrastructure. I noticed there was a Deakin Uni study a couple of years ago that found that parents, particularly in apartments, wanted their childcare centres and their schools to have really good quality outdoor spaces to make up for the fact that their kids didn't have that at home. And, you know, they were concerned about traffic safety too um, to make it, you know, nice and easy and safe for their kids to get to and from school and shops and things. So it feels like it's not just about how we build the apartments themselves, but it's how we build the facilities and the environment around them too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, regardless of where you live, you deserve to have good, to have access to good quality open and public space. You have, you deserve to have access to good quality public transport and, and you deserve to be able to walk along the street and feel safe. Um, so these are things that are not, um, uh, you know, limited to, you know, living out in a suburban context versus living in the city context. And so when we think about planning and we think about the building of higher good quality density, we need to think about it from a precinct perspective as well. What are the mm. neighborhoods that we're creating? And this is where um, the developing, the development community and the government can kind of let us down a little bit because they tend to focus on the building. We're going to build a building and then we walk away from it. And what we need is the kind of development partnership with government and communities that are fostering something that is greater than the building itself. So how do we build community within the context of, of the buildings, both with, with inside and outside? Crystal, Mick at Murrumbina's make an interesting point on the text line. Why don't we have more smaller cities? Most European cities can have very little high rise, but they do have a higher population. We seem enslaved to the greed of property developers. So what about that point that, you know, we need to stop thinking of Victoria as having one enormous city and start building up the populations of smaller satellite cities? Well, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and if we're going to build up uh, our regional towns, we just got to make sure it's got access to good quality infrastructure and job opportunities. And this, again, we need to think more holistically about uh, our planning and about uh, the distribution of our population and, and to ensure that it's not just about, you know, access to affordable housing, which is absolutely essential, but it's also about access to good quality services and jobs, right? And and to ensure that also in these regional towns that um, a diversity of, of people can live in these communities. So people who um, are perhaps, uh, you know, support workers um, can can live in the same environment as someone who, who might be working in a, in a more sort of like higher end corporate job, right? So we just need to make sure that our communities as, as are diverse as possible so that we can accommodate the changing demographics. Crystal, thank you. Crystal Legacy Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. As we talk about how we do high-density living well, uh, let's head to Bill, who's in Geelong. Hello, Bill. Well, 20 years ago, uh, when the Brad government changed the um, regulations around uh, medium-density residential near um, transport hubs and shopping centres, there was a lot of opposition to it, particularly in um, 
the area that I live in, Geelong West. And I remember going to a public meeting at the Geelong West Town Hall on a wet Sunday morning. Over a hundred people turned out, and I think I was the only one who supported the changes. What do you think uh, that was, Bill? Oh, it was the typical NIMBY, you know, we want families to live here with big back guard, yards. I mean, the, the average... Um, most blocks in uh, in Geelong West are between five and 700 metres, square metres. And people wanted to keep it as it was. But um, since then, my wife and I were probably the first ones to build a modernist um, subdivided block with uh, two modernist uh, two-storey houses on. And it's really opened the suburb up. There's uh, Throughout the suburb now, there's sprinkles of um, medium-density residential that haven't really affected um, the traffic that much. In fact, it's encouraged some people to only have one car rather than two or three. And it's really lifted the suburb. It's raised the value of, um, which is a, some people will think is a good thing, some people not so good, raised the value of the general housing stock and encouraged people with a bit more money to move into the area and um, renovate the older houses that uh, weren't being renovated prior to that but bill great to hear what it's what it's been like as sort of time has passed and people have have grown accustomed to what that higher or medium density living has has actually looked like in reality thanks for the call simon knott is a principal at bkk architects which really has urban renewal and conservation as a focus welcome simon oh hi bron thanks for having me so many people complaining about the noise and and also just the poor quality of a whole lot of apartments that we already have in Melbourne predominantly. What are we going to have to do to turn the corner on this? Um, because it's not just about what we build in the future, it's also about what we've already got and how we make that as good as it can be. Yeah, it's unfortunate and it, it really is a um, product of a number of different factors. I think both from a planning, a lot of the um, high-rise apartment buildings that were built under the sort of Matthew Guy regime uh, were just a wholesale, you know, build whatever you want from developers. Um, there's been a lot tighter and better regulation brought in since then about apartment design standards, but also in the build quality as well. And we've seen over the last you know, five, six years or so, um, all the issues with cladding and other build qualities in apartments. And there's been a whole lot of work in trying, across the country in trying to tighten up the regulation around that, but more needs to be done in doing it. But I also suggest that people, um, people could do much more from a demand side in the way that they choose the apartments they're buying. I think I'd be very wary buying off the plan despite the, um, despite the stamp duty savings, you can often run into much higher costs down the track. I mean, you really are without a very, I, I, people ask me about it and I ask them, well, who's building it? What are your contracts? And people have no idea. So unless you're really sure about the product you're getting at the end of that, I wouldn't be putting my money on the line. Um, and I also think that people, people spend a lot of time uh, researching you know, the maker of their car. Like you wouldn't go out and get a BMW and pay a lot of money for it without having any idea who, who's going to build it, where the building contract might just go to the lowest bidder. It might be built out in the back blocks of Russia somewhere. You wouldn't do that. So if you are going to spend probably the biggest purchase, you know, the biggest amount you'll ever spend in your life on your home, I'd be looking very carefully at who's going to build it. And there are a lot of fantastic builders out there. There are a lot of great developers out there. They're not all the same. Uh, they're not all the same at all. There's a huge difference in quality and what they're providing. So I encourage people to go and search out and do your research and make sure you're getting what you're looking for because acoustic issues should not exist. That's, you know, it's a code requirement. You should have good access to space now. You should have good quality apartments. They're part of the part of the uh, planning and building regime. So if they're not getting that, then, um, uh, then there's something wrong in the process and I'd be looking elsewhere. Interesting. One of our callers, I think it was, raised the point that, you know, he's moved into apartment, loves it, had some reservations at first and that the real estate agent really didn't sell mm. the benefits and the advantages. I wonder, is is that going to be part of the challenge ahead, is is actually making sure that we um, build, build it right but also sell it right? I think that is right. And we're seeing it. There's some really interesting things starting to change in the marketplace. And people have talk, heard, maybe heard about the Nightingale developments that have gone on for some time now. It's a mm. non-for-profit. Um, it's removed the develop. Well, they effectively are sort of their own non-for-profit developers. But um, really, they're looking at them. They're bypassing the whole real estate market and they're going straight to consumers. So they interview 
uh, a whole panel of the waiting list. They interview the prospective tenants coming in. Um, they vary the apartment mix according to the people coming into it. Um, they create these communities. Um, so there are, and, and people, um, but they have a quite a long waiting list of people trying to get into these developments because of those. They're great designs. They're well built. Um, they're um, very uh, sustainably uh, driven um, and they focus on community. They do everything that we want and, and high density living when it's done well is fantastic. And I think, you know, if you think, I always say to people like, where, where are the places you love to travel in the world? And a lot of the cities people like to go to are very high density cities, whether it's Tokyo, Paris, you know, New York, London, um, because, because they have a density of activity and amenity and other things happening within a very short space of, you know, in a very close area. And you get to experience all of that. So if it is done well, there's enormous benefits to it. And, um, you know, you've heard a number of those today on the show. Simon, you said that we've come a long way in the minimum standards and the regulations we now have, but have we gone far enough? Would you like to see to see them even even tougher or, or even more pres- prescriptive around livability? Yeah, I think so. I think we sort of have to. I think um, we, we they have come a long way, but they were coming from a long way back, and we've been behind Sydney on this for for decades now, for a couple of decades. Um, for instance, in the in the uh, inner city um, Sydney now. Any development needs to go through a competition process. Um, large, large development uh, needs to proposal needs to go through a, a design competition, and they'll have teams um, bidding for it. Um, they'll also have um, a number of really good architects, of um, emerging architects, experienced architects on the team, uh, to ensure a good design quality. And they have much, uh, they have a higher level, a high bar in terms of um, design standards as well. So. I, I, look, I don't want to see things over-regulated, but I think we could do we could do a lot more, and I think we do we need to do a lot more. The building code exists to um, demand a degree um, of quality in the built environment, and what we're seeing delivered out there has been well short of that for a long period of time. But there's been a lot of kind of government working behind that. Just got to see it coming through. Unfortunately, it's very very difficult to go back and change anything once it's been built. So if you don't get this right at the start, you're building mm. a legacy for our city, which is uh, is going to make it one of the most unlivable cities in the world, unfortunately. So we need to get it right. It's incumbent upon government to make sure we do it across the whole profession, really. Just quickly, I know that this build-to-rent model and even sometimes build-to-rent to then have the option to own is something that's far more common overseas than it is mm. in Australia. Is there... Is there a great opportunity there um, to to do that better? Yes, Ron, there certainly is. It is one of the, I think it's probably one of the most exciting things that could happen in Australia. It's really the tax settings and the financial positioning here that's made that difficult. But uh, something, uh, the, the investment from superannuation funds overseas in that type of housing is, uh, is a much, much higher percentage than it is here in Australia. And really what it means is that because the way the model is set up and a lot of the issues we have in Australia is to do with the procurement model where you design something, you go out to the market before it's built, you sell it and then the developers really kind of lost interest from there on and it's just a race to the bottom. Whereas what the um, generally, I'm not going to tar all developer with the same brush, but um, but then with the build to rent model, what you're doing is you're someone's investing this over a long term period. So so instantly the conversation changes. When we yeah. talk to those sort of developers, they're talking about a 40-year lifespan. Simon, we're going to have to wrap it up there because we are out of time, but what a whole lot to fit into a conversation about how we build better, more livable, high-density living as we try to accommodate Victoria's future population. Thank you for all the calls and texts. Have a great day. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page.